All right. It was Sunday school, if I remember correctly, that we started our study of biblical geography or Bible geography. So we're going to return to that tonight and see what we can, how far we can get. Um, before we do any review, the two books that I mentioned, um, I got in a Hallman Illustrated Guide to Biblical Geography, uh, Reading the Land. This one is a lot of just kind of descriptions of certain areas. Again, it's not necessarily one of the things I talked about in regards to teaching biblical geography is the whole reason I decided to do this kind of mini-series is because I was watching a, a video from a Bible college on a course on Bible geography, and it was the whole thing kind of frustrated me because it was just like, here's this place, and here's this place, and here's this place, and here, like, okay, <laughs> What do I do with that, right? What do I do with that? So this one feels very much a lot like that. I mean, it, I mean, I guess if you're looking, trying to find something about a specific place, but even trying to narrow it down, I mean, you know, some of these places you could probably find where they're talking about the specific place. I don't know if it's clearly broken down at the beginning here. Like, I don't think, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, I mean, like you have understanding geographical terms and places, geological structure and landforms, climate, water resources, soils, uh, settlements and roots, geopolitics, the Holy Land, then they, then they break it down into different regions. So I guess if you know the region you're looking for, right, then you could go read that section on that region and get kind of an idea. But again, what, remember the question I kept asking was, how profitable will that be to what? Understanding the text, that, that's really the kind of the question I'm trying to present to us or kind of our hypotheses. Now, I, and again, everyone seems to promote the idea. In fact, I, I was listening to something today where once again, they were like, basically, the, the, I'm summarizing or paraphrasing, if you don't know Bible geography, you can't know the Bible. And again, I, 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 that sounds so good in preaching and teaching, but if that's true, if that's true, the, the practical implications of that would be very, hey, we're going to have a disagreement about theology? Well, let's see who knows Bible geography. Whoever wins the geography test obviously is more suited, has greater chance of understanding the text. And nobody operates under that assumption. Nobody does, right? So I, I, I still don't know. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, before we even do a review, just to, since that's kind of a question that I am, I'm trying to emphasize, in the uh, Moody, the new Moody uh, Bible uh, Atlas, or Atlas of the Bible, they start with these sections here. And they're, they're, so they kind of start with the preface and then, hang on if I can find it. So they got chapter one is the physical and geography of the land. Okay, then they have these sections. The first one is role of geography in understanding history. Right, so what role does it play in understanding history? Okay, that's good. And then guess what they have? Page 16, the role of geography in understanding the Bible. So I want to, so before we, I wanted to advance, but if we, even if we just focus on this tonight, I think this will be beneficial because this is the big question, right? What is the role of geography in understanding the Bible? Now, on Sunday, I will throw in a little bit of review before we get into this. On Sunday, what did we really uh, attempt to do? 
right? What we asked, what is geography, right? And we kind of read a basic definition of geography. And then we said that geography falls into how many categories? Three categories. And what are those categories? Physical geography, human geography, and natural history. And then we looked at each one. What is physical geography? It studies the natural features of the earth and the natural forces that affect them. Human geography, the way which human beings interact and respond to that geography, growing food, securing water, building shelter, traveling, labeling locations, and burying family. Natural history, the plants, the insects, the trees, and the animals that inhabit a region. Okay, and then we looked at some Bible passages where these things all show up, right? And we looked at an example of each one. In fact, we didn't even, we didn't go, we, uh, we didn't get as far into it as I wanted. Uh, but we, we looked at every kind. And I have notes and notes and notes on some of those examples. And then we ended with our resources, which we're looking at currently. And then tonight, what we're going to try to move to is why is geography in the Bible? But before we answer that question, we're going to answer another question, which we have kind of superimposed upon everything we've studied. What is the role of geography in understanding the Bible? And I'm just going to start reading through some of this, and we're going to talk about it and break it down and see. see. And I want you to just, what I want you to listen for is to what level do they place geography as being essential to understanding the Bible? All right? And I will, and my argument is that if we are honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, the average person feels that geography is about how useful to understanding the Bible, if we're honest with ourselves. Not very, not very. Because what do you typically do? Got this wrapped around my head. What do we typically do? when we come to a passage and geography is mentioned? I mean, you probably, I, 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 I bet rarely, I bet, and, and, and again, we could, we could ask this question a million different ways. I think when it comes to the, uh, we, we could just first ask, when it comes to the average Christian, how many, how many times or hours in a year do they spend actually doing Bible study methods and actually engaged in serious study? And we know by every statistical study that's ever been done, that's very, very, very little, all right? And any study typically takes place inside the context of a church. And geography in church, which we talked about on Sunday, is typically mentioned just as like a little extra. It's, to me, it almost, it's almost used in a manipulative way, right? So the pastor will be blah, 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 and then he'll name a place and he'll go, well, this place is five miles east from here, you're two miles north of that, and it's got a lot. And just throw out some general information that he found in a con. It felt like it feels very. Now, if the pastor has traveled to the land, then he may mention something that when I was there, I saw this or that or that. And, and, th- and it, it's just thrown out as kind of a trivia, right? That's not like, because you know, as soon as he gets past it, it never comes into play in the rest of the sermon, right? It has no bearing on the rest of the sermon. It's just thrown in there as part of the production, right? I hate to say that, but so much of preaching is a production. It's a, it's a play. It's, it's putting on a show, so much of it. Because if it, if it really mattered, where would it show up? Once you started exegeting the text, you would be like, hey, remember what we talked about the geography? That's very important to understand this verse. That almost never happens. Now, the question is, should it happen? 
And because it doesn't happen, does that leave uh, everyone really knowing, not knowing the Bible correctly? So let's see how the Moody Atlas, how they want us to, to handle this. This is, let me see, they only have basically two pages here. So I'm going I'm to do some skimming. I may start reading and decide to just skip it, but I'm going to look at some things. They're going to give us some biblical examples. So we'll look up some biblical examples. And, you, and you're, I am not taking a side here. So as we read this, it's your job, and by all means, you can voice it out loud, whether you agree with the Moody Atlas or disagree, all right? So what are we, we going to look at right now? The role of geography in understanding the Bible, all right? This is how they begin. Matters of time and space remain among the difficulties that vex a 21st century student of the Bible. So matters of time and space are difficulties that vex. That's a strong word. A 21st century student of the Bible. Does anyone believe time and space impacts your understanding of the Bible? Now, what do they mean by time and space? Well, time, it would vex us. Why? Because we're separated by thousands and thousands of years. Okay? So we do understand that, t- that, that distance in time between the Bible events and we living, we do understand that there's a lot we don't understand. I th- yeah, the culture and that kind of thing. Space, I don't know exactly what they're referencing in space unless they're referencing the geographical space in which the stories occur. Right? right. There, there. Now, and may- maybe that does impact us. I think the time difference impacts us more than the space because the time difference means we're stepping into a world with a completely different culture that seems very foreign to us. That I can at least understand. They go on to say, the proclamations of scripture were occasioned and penned from distinctive settings, Yet modern students of the Bible live in a different millennium and adhere to a different worldview. Now, I agree that there is this major difference. Now, I think we like to believe. I think we like to believe that we adhere to the same worldview. We like to believe that, right? But I think we can agree we don't. Now, I know that's going to be controversial and someone's going to declare me to be a heretic. But when was the last time, I don't know, it's acceptable in a church to go have uh, physical relations with your slave who's not your wife? I don't think we have the same worldview, right? How many think that it's perfectly okay to have 700 wives and 300 concubines? I, I, I think that there's many examples where we're sub, there is a massive disconnect between, uh, and what, what is interesting is, is this raises lots of questions, right? Because we talk a lot about what? A biblical worldview. But clearly the worldview held by people in the Bible versus the way the worldview that we have I don't even know if we would, I don't even think we could be in the same church together. Correct? So then we have to ask, in many cases, the worldview demonstrated is a worldview more influenced by the culture than it is the actual scripture, meaning 
that the people in the Bible were influenced by their culture and we are influenced by our culture and we merge culture and scripture and we create a worldview that we claim is biblical, but it's usually a mixture of what two things? Culture and scripture. And we merge it together. So I, I think I, I, I'm going to stand by that. I think, I think that's true. All right. They go on to say most live on a different continent. That is true. So in our desire to properly interpret and apply the Bible, now please note, our desire to properly interpret and apply, once again, they're going to connect it to that interpreting. If you want to properly interpret. Now, what do you think they're getting ready to say we need to know to properly interpret it? Well, I have a feeling that that's probably where they're going, but let's let them state it. And our desire to properly interpret and apply the Bible, we must ensure as much as possible that our enterprise is built knowledgeably upon the grid of the Bible's own environment. Meaning, if I'm going to properly understand, then I must, I must base that interpretation on my knowledge of the time and space of the Bible, or the, the, the place where it occurred. In other words, I have to know geography. Now, again, I, I struggle with that. Because, I, like, when you get ready to do, like, when you get ready to do a sermon series on geography, that's the way I need to promote the sermon series, right? Hey, you can't understand the Bible until you know geography. Be here for the next six weeks. Tell your friends. Grab the link and share it with everyone you know. It's like, what are, that's how you sell things. But I don't like that whole marketing thing that Christianity is involved in. I'm challenging it because I don't, I, I don't think anyone actually believes that at all. Because if they did, then the people, would, people would be like, you know what? I really can't argue right now about that because I don't really know the geography of the place where this occurred. So I'm not going to have an opinion. Okay, nobody is going to say that. Nobody is going to say that. Agreed? So let's continue here. At the outset, it is imperative for one to view geography something more than just, you know, useless information that can be arbitrarily divorced from biblical interpretation. In other words, we, we ha- it's imperative for us to view geography as being something important, not something that's useless that can just be divorced from interpreting the Bible. In other words, they have to be married. We got to marry our understanding of geography to interpreting the Bible or something is going to go wrong. That sounds so good. I just... I just don't know if I agree, agree with this, okay? Or I, don't, I, I don't agree with it in the sense I don't know, I don't believe people actually think this way, all right? Uh, they go on to say here, uh, to the contrary, that it's just loose, you know, useless and can be divorced, the biblical portrait of both Israel and the church is painted on several levels, including the territorial level. So, in fact, if we're going to really understand this, we got to know all these different levels. And one of the levels that deals with territory, deals with land, deals with geography. All right. Well, well, well let's see if they can, if they can uh, prom- uh, promote this, all right, or, or, or prove this. In point of fact, biblical narratives 
are often driven by the notion of space. Now, what they're referring to as space, they're, they're clearly making that a reference to geography. That's the way they're using it, if you haven't already caught on to that. That's really how they're using it. So, I want you to hear that again. Biblical narratives are often driven by the notion of space. Biblical narratives are often driven by the notion of space. Now, there are plenty, they refer to them as biblical narratives. The Bible is filled with a certain form of literature. We call them what? Historical narratives. Correct? Now, the historical narratives are typically found where? The Old Testament. Give me some example of books that are historical narratives. Okay, Genesis kind of got a mixture of a lot of stuff, but there is still historical narratives woven within, right? Yeah, Samuel, definitely. Judges, Kings, Chronicles. Okay, we de- those are where you really get the vibe of it, right? Okay, and those historical narratives will, will constantly, they name people and they name all kinds of countries, don't they? They named kings, territories, land. They traveled here. They went up. It'll use that. They went up or they went down. Now, that's clearly giving you some kind of clue, right? Up or down. Why are they using that term? So it's filled with it. There's no one here that, no one here, and I, I know I'm not and I know you're not. None of us are denying that geography is all over the Bible. Their argument is that, well, you've got to know this, okay? In fact, they go on to say, biblical narratives are driven by it. An incident may be said to have occurred on a certain hill, in a particular valley, on a discrete plain, at a given town. At times, the name of the place itself becomes an important part of the revelation. All right, stop right there. There are times that the name of the place is an important part of the revelation. Any, can anyone think of an example in the Bible where the name of a place seems to be very significant to the revelation? Okay, D- does the Bible mention that by name? Well, look it up. Let's look it up. Come on, let's, let's, let's look it up. Okay, well, let, let's look, whichever one, you look for the passage and look it up and see and give us the name. Everyone try to find one where you think the name of a place is important to the revelation. Because once we, once you, when you think of the ones, then we'll see if the, what the text does with it, right? So see if you can think of one. I can think of a couple. See if you can find it. Yeah, okay, yeah, I didn't think so. All right. Okay. Well, there, that, I'm not saying that it doesn't mention that place, may not by that name. So then we'd have to do some little geographical study to figure out where that place is located and then see how it's referenced in the Bible. Okay, go ahead. Did you have one? Okay, that Exodus 15, 23. Okay. Now there, though, the text does all of the clarification for you, right? Right, yeah, I know. But I'm just once again going to come to... So it tells us the name of the place was called Mara because the waters were bitter. Now, uh, if you've got a a Blue Letter Bible app, look up the Hebrew word for Mara and see if that's the meaning of the word. Let's just... Okay. 
All right, okay. Megiddo and get uh, okay. But uh, Mara, have someone look up Mara and and tell me. Yeah, and tell me if that's what the Hebrew word means. Let's let's just ver- let's just verify it. Is that true? Not true? False? You can just look up Exodus fifteen twenty three and then go to the interlinear and pull it up. I have a quick way to find it. Okay, he's bitter. Okay, so the text tells you everything you need to know, right? So in that case, the name, the place is significant, but really, if you think about it, in that particular incident, it's the incident that gives the place the name, right? So it's not so much that the place is important to the revelation, and it's the event that's important to the revelation. So it's not so much the place. Let's try another example. Um, I think if you look somewhere, probably in the New Testament, you should find a name of this town. I see, it's kind of important. It's called Bethlehem, right? So someone look up Bethlehem in uh, the New Testament. Should be there maybe in Matthew, maybe in Luke. And when you find Bethlehem, you find the verse. Tell me, someone yell out which verse they found it in. Just the word Bethlehem. Should be there in the first couple of chapters of Matthew or do what? New Testament. Let's go New Testament. What is it? Matthew 2 1. All right, now someone look up the Greek and tell me, do we find anything significant? The text doesn't tell you the meaning of the name, does it? No, it does not. It does not. Does the Greek offer any insight? House of bread. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Now, now, why is that interesting? Because Jesus is going to refer to himself as the, the bread of life. And Bethlehem is the house of bread. Now the name of the place may have significance to the revelation. Now that's a case where, look, if you look at the text, does the text ever tell you that it's the house of bread? No, I don't think it does. I don't think it ever does. I don't think it ever does. Meaning then, you would have to do what to find that? You would have to look it up yourself. Now, you may hear it in a sermon, but you've got to always be careful about that, right? I remember there was the famous sermon where uh, someone said that the entire gospel is found in one of the list of names in the book of Genesis. And this name means like, you know, sin. And this name means that. And then, and then you look up all the names and you get about halfway through it. And guess what happens? starts falling completely and utterly apart because the names don't mean that. Where they got the idea those names mean that, I don't know where they got that idea those names mean that. Sometimes you got to look it up. So it's your responsibility. So what I'm saying is Bethlehem is a great example because that seems to be important to the revelation. Other than just its association with David, it may have other, but there may be something significant there. All right. So once again, what did they say here in regards to this? Okay, I'm going to go back here. I'm going to just read this whole point. And, po- and point of fact, Bible, biblical narratives are often driven by the notion of space. An incident, may be, an incident may be said to have occurred on a certain hill in a particular valley on a discrete plain at a given town. All times, at times, the name of the place itself becomes an important part of revelation. 
frequently including a wordplay or pun on the name in order to reinforce the location of the event and public consciousness. So sometimes they say the text is it's actually a wordplay. A pun may be go, a, a happening. And well, guess whose job it is to figure that out? Your job. Why would it, at that time, it wouldn't have required anyone to figure it out because it would have probably been being used in a way that everyone at that time would have what? Understood it. But we're separated by time. So then we have to figure that out. All right, so has everybody got that? Yeah, exactly. Occasionally, an aspect of geography becomes a theological axis around in which an entire book revolves. Did everybody hear that? Occasionally, an aspect of geography becomes a theological axis around which an entire biblical book revolves. Can anybody think of a book where that happens? A theological axis in which an entire book is wrapped around. Geography. All right, someone said Exodus. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see if they offer an example. All right. They go on to say a large, or a large portion of the book is particularly rich in geographical metaphor. For example, fertility and the book of Deuteronomy. Fertility in the book of Deuteronomy or forestation and the book of Isaiah, hydrology and the book of Psalms, agricultural agricultural and the book of Joel. Often it is precisely a geographical reference or allusion that enables scholars to assign a book to a place of origin, such as Amos in Israel's northern kingdom or James in eastern Mediterranean basin. So they're going on saying, hey, some books, this is absolutely critical. Your entire understanding of the book. Now, I do agree that, yes, sometimes the book gives us clues and you can go, well, that's clearly where they were. Now, that's important because why is that important? Sometimes, so before we go to the theology, this is important. Sometimes the geographical clues lets us know where a book was written. Why is that important? Because that can offer the setting. Right? Especially when you're dealing with minor prophets. Are they in the north? Are they in the south? Because that's going to be key into interpreting. Okay? Are they in exile? Post, uh, you know, pre or post exile? Some of those things are critical, right? So you can see that there are certain things about geography that now we can at least say is somewhat important. Now, to say that a book, a geography can basically serve as a theological axis in which the entire book is wrapped around. All right, that's a major claim. That's a major claim. We'll see if we can get any more information here. They go perhaps even more profoundly, Jewish faith in the Old Testament was inextricably tied to space and land. In fact, land became the prism of this faith. Oh, wow. That's kind of important. Wait a minute. Now, wait. They're telling me that the land was important in the Old Testament? Oh, I, I, 
I, I, I never realized that. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not being sarcastic towards the book. I'm being sarcastic towards an entire theological system that says the land doesn't matter at all because Israel lost the land and we don't care about it anymore. But uh, none of the Old Testament Jews would have thought that. In fact, I don't think any of the Jews would have, the Jews at the time of Jesus would have been like, oh, we don't care about the land anymore. In fact, they were asking Jesus from the very moment right before he ascended, hey, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And that restoration of the kingdom would have involved land. And Jesus didn't say, there's no land, there's no kingdom. Stop it. It's called the church. Go down to the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. That's it now. He didn't say that, did he? He just told them, not for you to know now. You've got other responsibilities. So I don't know how you can just throw that out of your theology, but okay, but I I think it's very important. Land becomes a, a prism of their faith. Land and space was an arena in which God acted mightily on behalf of his people. Consider the call and covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the Exodus, Sinai, uh, and the Sinai motif, the, uh, the conquest settlement of the land, and the captivity away from the land, the return to the land. Um, many of God's promises related directly to the original possession or later restoration of a particular parcel of real estate. Can we agree to that? I think we can. It is not an overstatement to declare that during its years of recorded biblical history, Israel's rootage in the land provided its faithful, uh, their foundational identity, their security, and even their prosperity. I don't think there's any way to disagree with that. I mean, land and Israel are forever what? Linked. Yeah. Forever linked. And remember, what, what we made a big deal out of it. We made a big deal out of that when we were struggling with, you know, do we look at it from an all-millennial standpoint? Do we look at it from a dispensational standpoint? And I don't really care the title you give. My, t- my issue has always been, did God make promises f- for Israel for land? Yes. Did they make it to that land? Yes. They, well, they did make it to the land, right? And some will argue, well, that fulfilled all the promise. So then what we said is, we're not going to get into that debate, right? Because some people will say, well, they possessed it. Some people say, well, they never really possessed all of it. And then you can go back. I'm not going to fight that. So what did I argue? All I need to do is look for the promises of the new covenant that was made with house of Israel and the house of Judah. And does it include land? If it does, we know it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not going to then go make house of Israel and house of Judah symbolic at representing the church because nobody would have understood at that time. And I'm not going to make land mean something other than land. And if I take those literal, well, then Israel still has promises for a land which they have not received, meaning geography becomes very important, right? Because when you look at the measurements of that land, that... They, they would have to have most of, they would have to have a good portion of the Middle East to have it, right? Like they don't even have anything close to it, right? I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, Israel is so small. I mean, I, it may, I don't know. I'd have to look at the largest counties in Texas, but I, I, I can almost guarantee it would probably come close that all of Israel could probably fit into some of the counties in Texas, okay? Okay, right, Wichita Falls to Abilene. There you go, okay. So that's, that's pretty close, okay. That's, I mean, that's insane. 
That, that's insane. So that's not the land that was promised to them. So can we agree to that? All right. When they were not in possession of their lands, Israelites were often described in terms that reflected the precarious connotations of landlessness and aimlessness and estrangement. All right, so you're ready? So whenever they didn't have the land, the Bible used language to kind of show this is a bad situation. So I'm going to just look at, I'm going to throw out random scriptures. Y'all look them up and tell me what you find, right? I'm not going to tell you what's there. You tell me what you're going to find. For, uh, someone go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Genesis 12, 10, and tell me what you find there. All right, sojourn. That's the idea of sojourning. They want all these scriptures that mention sojourning. Now, please note that scripture. Everyone look, look at Genesis 12, 10. Everyone look at it carefully. That's Genesis 12, 10, right? Yeah, look at it carefully. Genesis 12, 10. And tell me what you find there. Okay, it doesn't mention lots of things that would be related to geography. How does it begin? Famine in the land, okay? So we would need to figure out what land that's referencing, right? Okay, we're not gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do some of this when we move forward in this study. We're gonna be doing some of this. But he went, so he, there was a famine in the land, next verse, next part of the verse. Went down. He goes down into Egypt. All right, so that means, okay, what down means what? Like, do you know how to under, interpret down? Does down represent a direction? Does it represent a change in elevation? What does that represent, right? So we would have to, we need to figure that out, okay? What else does it say? Mentions Egypt, right? Okay, anything else? And the, and the famine was uh, uh, grievous in the land. And it talks about him being sojourning, does it not? Okay, a sojourner was a resident alien who did not belong and could not settle down to enjoy the privileges afforded the citizen. So that's kind of the, why the idea of a sojourner. He's, 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 he's a pilgrim. He's, he doesn't have a place. Look at Genesis 15, 13. Genesis 15, 13, what do you see? All right, so they're going to a land that's not theirs. They're not going to have a land. And what's going to be the result of them not having a land and being in a land that's not theirs? They're going to be afflicted. They're going to be servitude for how many years? 400. Okay, look at Genesis 47.4. Genesis 47.4. Genesis 47.4. Tell me what you see there. Genesis 47.4. This book and these lights do not mix. Every time I keep looking down, it's like, I'm seeing, I'm getting all blurry. I'm like, what is happening to my glasses? But then as soon as I get it out of the light, I can see it, all right? All right Genesis 47, 4. Yeah, someone, yeah, someone tell me. What do you find there? All 
Okay, so they, there was a, a famine in the land of Canaan. They're there and they're looking for help because they don't, because they, in a sense, they're not in their land, right? They're a sojourner. And what are they looking for? A place to dwell. And it names some places, right? What's the place it names? Goshen, right? Yeah, okay. And Canaan names two places, okay? Now, let's just do this. Just do this for fun. Grab a Bible dictionary. Let's just do this for fun. Because we're trying to, what they're trying to show you is that land is so important in the Bible that anytime someone is landless, it's, 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 a, it's a significant thing. It may have spiritual value because it shows the idea of being a pilgrim, which is a major theme that goes to the Bible. Look up Canaan. Look up Canaan in the Bible dictionary. There's one right there. Look up Canaan. That's a different Bible dictionary. Yeah, but look up Canaan. When you find the page number, yell out, scream, something. No, not a map. Just, just look up the entry for Canaan. What page? 240. At 240. Okay. <laughs> Someone else looked at Canaan? Okay, all right. You got Goshen, okay. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all don't work well together, Okay. All right, what do, you, what do we find? 241, what do you find in Canaan? What's the, like, it's just the, at the very beginning, she give you a simple definition or explanation of Canaan. Land of purple is the meaning of it? The name of a man and a land or region in the Old Testament. Okay, does it say anything about the land or the region? A simple, something simple, because I know it's going to give a The Jordan River in the east. To the Mediterranean Sea on the west. The Mediterranean in the west. Now that's the... North, it covers the territory between the Sinai Peninsula and the ancient coastal nation of Phoenicia. Now please note, you see that, that statement right there? That's the things a pastor will cut and paste and then read that when he mentions Canaan and then everybody will be like, ooh. And then, and then guess where? Will he show up anywhere else in the sermon? So then, it's great to know that, but then it serves what? As Bible trivia material. we got to figure out, what is the significance of where it is, right? So, there's a a famine in Canaan. Which which verse are we in in Genesis right now? 47.4. There's a famine in Canaan, right? Canaan uh, stretches from where? Okay, that's a lot. That's a, a pretty good size area that it covers, right? Now, they go from Canaan, and they, does the Bible say they go down? They go down to Goshen, right? Okay. Now, what's? Uh, give me the entry for Goshen. Okay, so they go into Egypt. Now, this is very important. Now, geography is important. So they go from Canaan down to Egypt, right? Now, I don't, if, now, if we had a good map here, if we had a good map, you could see where they traveled, right? I don't know if, if, if any of you, of any of the dictionaries have a good map. Okay, what's some helpful information? Okay. 
Okay, so you could, now according to that, did you just hear that? That's, that, that makes sense that they would go to Egypt. There was a trade route there. There would have been, a, there would have been possibly route, roads that have been easier to travel. So it may, would have made sense that they went to Egypt. See, that, offers some, may, that may offer some explanation because we may just like, why do these guys always go to Egypt, right? Does anybody see a map where you can see uh, Canaan versus Goshen? Okay, there's Canaan. Oh, no. Okay. All right. So relatively pretty good distance of travel, but there was trade routes that led there. So you can see why. So it would explain maybe where they went, right? Now, I'm not saying that changes your entire meaning of the text, but it gives you some idea of where they went, right? And it uses the word down and you could, you could, you could, so it gives you at least some idea. Now, to me, the trade route makes sense. And, and here's the reason it makes sense. What do we have a tendency to do whenever we face difficulty? Do we look for the difficult solution or the easy solution? Well, if there's a trade route, guess what? That means there's people traveling, and if there's a famine in your land, people who are traveling by, headed to Egypt, if they've been going there frequently, they probably can tell you, hey, there's food in Egypt. So then they would take the Easy route, right? That, that would, I mean, that would make sense, right? Okay, so I just want you to kind of see how that works. Go to Exodus chapter 6, verse 4. Exodus chapter 6, verse 4. So in some ways, you can see that this information could be beneficial. I'm not saying yet how, considering how critical they've made it sound, we've not found anything to reach that level, but, right, Exodus 6, 4. Right? Okay. A God promising them the land of Canaan. All right. Now, now this is important. Exodus six four. Now God is promising them a specific land. Meaning, and guess what? In Exodus, they don't have that land because where do we find them in Exodus? In Egypt. In Genesis forty seven, they went to Goshen, which is in Egypt. Right? And then they stay there, right? Do they not end up basically staying there? Okay, and they stay there, and then a a new pharaoh arises, who doesn't know whom? Joseph, and then he puts them into bondage, and they don't have a land. They're sojourners. They're sojourners. And that sojourner concept is whenever they're landless, they're sojourners, and and all of that deals with the Bible describing geography, which then serves as a spiritual picture, that that's how we are to consider ourselves, that we do not have a land. This is not our land. Right? So now the geography connects to a very important spiritual and theological perspective. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verse 19. What do you find in Deuteronomy 10, verse 19? Okay, hey, so now they're being landless. Wandering around is to directly impact how they are to treat those who are 
landless, those who are strangers, those who are wandering into lands that are not their own. And what was Israel to do? When, when the stranger, when the person who does, has, comes into your land, how are you to treat them? What does it say? What does the text say? The exact words? Love them. You're to love them, not hate them, not vilify them. You are to love them. That's a, that's a powerful concept, right? You used to be landless. When you see someone else coming into your land, you're to love them, not vilify them. Hey, that, that's probably controversial in, in, in our day and age. Go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 26. What do you see in verse 5? Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. All right, showing that he was what? A sojourner. He, he was wandering around, right? Yes? Okay. Right. So then uh, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, you you can see what they're getting ready to do here, right? All of that information about real land and real sojourning, they're getting ready to do something what with it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Everybody ready for this one? They all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers... And pilgrims on earth. They were strangers and pilgrims on earth. They they were given a promise. They never saw the fulfillment of the promise. They never got the promise. And by, by faith, we're strangers and pilgrims. Can we see the fulfillment of the promise yet? No, because we're looking for a heavenly city, a, a heavenly land, right? So there's a still logical parallel, what they're trying to show you. Now, I think we can pick all of that up without spending too much time in the geography, but clearly the Bible is using that space and that land for all kinds of spiritual significance, so we need to at least pick that up. Does that make sense? But they're not done there. They want us to go to Numbers 32. There's lots of scriptures here. They want us to go to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32, verse 13. What do you find there? All right, so this is that talks of Israel's wandering in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. This is what it says. A wanderer was someone en route to nowhere. He was not just between stops, but actually had no specified destination or home. They were wandering. They had no place to go because they were never going to get where? They were not getting anywhere. They were wandering around to die. Right? So, in a sense, they were landless. Go to Hosea chapter 9, verse 17. Hosea chapter 9, verse 17. They should be wanderers among the nations. Is that not what ultimately happened to Israel? 
70 AD, the nation is destroyed. And where do they go? They wander amongst the nations, right? Okay, very very important. Uh, Then go to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Well, we've already read this one verse, so we won't read that one again. That's Deuteronomy 26.5. We already read it, okay? So you get the basic idea. Let's go to another one. Go to 2 Kings chapter 18. Okay, what do you find in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 11? All right, that's them going into exile. They're going somewhere. Now, they're going to be taken from the one land and they're going into another land. And it names a number of places, does it not? That would be a, that's just something we can look up to get a basic idea. What's, where, where, do they, where are they taken? Okay. Okay, so does it say they go to, uh, read the whole thing again? Because I think it, and the king of Syria, okay, so they go to Assyria, all right, so just uh, grab the Bible dictionary really quick and just uh, look up an entry for Assyria. So they're taken from Canaan. To Assyria. Now we've already read the description of where Canaan is located, right? Now, now read the description for Assyria. Does it give you any specific place? What does it say? Okay, between the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, on the back of that dictionary, is that where you saw that map earlier? Right? Can you find uh, Assyria on that map in relation to Canaan? I think there's a map even in the entry, right? On Assyria, I think there's a map there. Does it show where Assyria is? Okay. And where's Canaan is way over there. Okay, so pretty good distance, right? So they get an idea of where they were taken. Now, does that change everything? No, it just knows that they're, they're, they're be, obviously they're removed from their land into another land, okay? I don't know how much that actually helps you to see it. Go to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 13. 5.13. All right, my people will go into exile for a lack of understanding. Please note it uses the word going into exile or in exile, right? Now, remember we talked about sojourning. A sojourner was a resident alien who did not belong and could not settle down, Right? A wanderer is someone who had nowhere to go. Exile, an exile was someone who had been forcibly uprooted or disenfranchised from his own land and obliged to live in another place. So in a roundabout way, we see all of this transpiring in the life of Israel, and it deals with geography, but it very much has some spiritual significance, does it not? I go to uh, Isaiah 49, 21.
What do you see in Isaiah 49, 21? All right, so the idea that they're gone and they've been removed and they've been, they've been all over the place. All right? Then go to Ezekiel 39, 23. Ezekiel 39, 23. Uh, yeah, 39, 23. Okay, they go into exile, the idea of exile and captivity. And then go to Ezra 111, Ezra 111. We're going to run out of time, we're going to run out of time. Oh, yeah, we're going to run out of time. All right. Ezra 111. Okay, brought up. Now we're brought up. Now how some of the places went down, now you're brought up. Clearly, that's giving you some kind of idea. Now, I'm not saying if I understand the up and the down is going to change everything, but now we have a specific plague from Babylon up to Jerusalem. Right? So now we can look up some of that, but we're out of time. So what I'm going to do is read one more uh, part of one more paragraph, or two more paragraphs and try to summarize this basic idea. There's a lot more here to, uh, to, to partake of and to study, but let's at least consider this. Here we go. You ready? Really quick. Whether removed to Egypt, Babylon, or elsewhere, landlessness was tantamount to hopelessness. Israel's covenantal faith was very much based on and grounded in events that transpired at certain places in this world. There was an acute consciousness of a national home, a definable geographical domain in which even the soil was divinely consecrated that one may call holy land. One can rightly characterize Israel's faith by its here and now essence. One, now this is where they're going to say, and I don't know if we want to agree with this. We're not going to, well, I'm not going to read the next part because we would have to go challenge it. We don't have time to challenge it. So we're going to leave that. They're just saying that Israel's faith was very much tied to what? Land, land, land. We cannot deny that. But at the same time, even though their faith was very much attached to the land, they constantly found themselves what? Not in the land. Meaning that their faith had to cling to something other than what was tangibly in front of them because they didn't have it yet. And that's kind of Hebrew's argument, right? It's by faith. Faith is the evidence. Faith is that thing that we, we don't have yet. We can't even see, we can only see it by faith. So there's, so Israel's relationship to the land and being out of the land, but hoping for the land and promise the land has great spiritual significance. But land is, we can't take land from the story because it's mentioned over and over and over and over and over again. Now, they go on, and this is how they end this section. All right? I'm just going to read a couple of things. They, they say here, 
um, armed with geographical knowledge of the Bible, one is better able to understand references such as the former and latter rains, the strong, the strong east wind, or land flowing with milk and honey. In a similar way, one can better appreciate the scorching effect of Israel's hot sun, the implications of no rainfall, and the importance of dew uh, for crop survival, the prevalence of fertility, Baal worship, the nature of Egyptian, Canaanite, and Mesopotamian deities, the migrations of Abraham, Moses, Nehemiah, the terrain Joshua's forces could conquer, but over which the Philistines could uh, not run their chariots, the astounding success of David eluding Saul's manhunt, the social psychology of the ministry of John the Baptist, the motivation behind Jesus' astute move from Nazareth to Capernaum, and the staggering distances traveled by the Apostle Paul. They're saying that with the knowledge of geography, all of that makes sense. If you don't have the knowledge of geography, none of that makes sense. Now that's a huge claim. That's a huge claim. Because if it's true, then a whole lot of Christians need to just stop talking and start studying geography because they're making claims about things in which they have no clue what they're referring to. Right? That's a big claim. And then they end with this. Cultivating a spatial awareness is a necessary and valuable component in any serious study of the Bible. Like the Bible itself, faith is formulated from within spatial and temporal context of which it was a part. Hence, the geographical discipline should become both the object and the vehicle of some of the most rewarding and enlightening Bible study it is clearly worthy of a detailed investigation. They make it almost essential and necessary. Now, we did see, when we get into some of that, the sojourning, we understand where the, the land, we understand what a sojourner is, the wanderer, the exile. All of that is important. I don't know yet. Now, we did see that sometimes we have to look up a little bit about a place, Right? The fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, that has great significance, but it may even have a little bit more significance when you find out what it means. Now, does that change the meaning of the story? I'm not saying it does. So I'm not, I'm not completely convinced yet it's as significant as they claimed, but we did see a lot of places. We did look up some information. We just did a little bit. And I don't know if we can, you know, we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on this. I don't know if we can say, Wow, if I didn't know geography, I wouldn't under, we, we learned a bit a little geography, but I don't know if I completely am convinced yet of, of the significance of it. But they're convinced, and they're not the only ones, that you can't understand. They gave a list of things you can't understand without geography. That was a long list of things. That former and latter rain, do you realize an entire charismatic movement's based off that nonsense? So if, if the charismatic world has taken the former and latter reign, the weep, and if you're saying you can't understand it without geography, then maybe we would have to study geography to have a better understanding of it. So maybe then you can, I, don't, I think I can argue against charismatic's approach without even, 
you know, knowing geography, but they're saying it's important to know it. So we have to figure out. The, so I, I'm going to, what, what did we, how did we end Sunday school? What did we say about the role of geography in studying the Bible? Does anybody remember? We stated that we, we, ha, we cannot dogmatically assert that you can't understand the Bible without it, but we can say it can clarify, right? And help you have maybe a better understanding, but we cannot, we've yet to be able to prove that it's like essential. That like, if you don't know it, I, I, because I, and, and, and I, but I, you do, I, I cannot stress this. This is not a, this is not just like some academic question. You do realize the implications of it. If we determine that geography is absolutely essential to understanding the Bible, then anyone who claims to interpret the text without a study of geography should then be what? Dismissed. Silenced. And that would mean you as an individual, you can't offer interpretation unless you know it. All the books seem to constantly be telling us how important it is. I'm not, I'm not ready to say that. In fact, I'm going to resist saying that. You know why I'm going to resist saying that? Because that's a major... I mean, that, that's, a, that's a dogmatic assertion that basically th- throws out all kinds of people's interpretation of the Bible. Now, I will argue people have been interpreting the Bible without much knowledge of geography for 2,000 years of church history. I don't, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time saying everyone's been wrong. But I'm willing to say that everything in the Bible happens in the context of geography. How many scriptures did we look up tonight? That was a lot. And every single one of them had something to do with what? Land and geography. Land and geography. And traveling. Up, down, this place, this place. And we looked up. And, and is it cool to try to get an idea of where it is? It's kind of cool, right? It is kind of cool to see it. We can kind of get an idea of distance and how far they traveled. I, to me, what was most important was just understanding the term sojourner the term wanderer, and the term exile, how their faith was greatly associated with the land because all of that had a spiritual picture because we are sojourners. Now, we're not wanderers in the sense that we have no place to go. Now, in some ways, we're a wanderer on earth because we have nowhere to go on this earth. So we're a sojourner. And in some ways, we're in exile because we're not where we're supposed to be, Right? Our citizenship is in heaven. So, and guess what? We have a promise of a land that we still don't have yet. So all of that geography for Israel has great spiritual picture for us. But that doesn't discount that they have a promise for actual land. So you have to try to put all of that together. And then you, there's, there's, some, there's some great spiritual picture there. But I think I can get that spiritual picture without what? Knowing all the geography. Because what I need to know is what a sojourner is, what a wonder is, and what an exile is. And I, can, I don't need to know all the places that they're sojourning. I, I do need to know that they're greatly commanded, hey, you didn't have a land, you need to love those who don't have a land, right? Okay, that, that has spiritual significance. Knowing the specific places, and, and I, I, you know, the, the Canaan is along the Mediterranean Sea, and it's, I can't remember 
well, all the, 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 measure, the things you gave in uh, that definition. But I can memorize all of that. I could recite it during a sermon and I could win at Bible trivia. But it's got to be more important than that or, it, or we're making it more than it is. And I still am not completely convinced. I think our best example was we had to study the meaning of Bethlehem for it to mean something because the Bible did not tell us. Or the other example of what Mara, it told us. So then the question would be, if God didn't tell us that, why didn't he? Right? Because in other places, he tells you the meaning of the name, right? This place is called this because of this. Now, in many cases, the event is what makes the place significant. It's not that the place makes the event significant. So in that case, you need to know the event more than you need to know the place. The place is secondary to the event. They made the argument that in some cases the event or the the, uh, place makes the event. And I'm not so sure about that. I'm not convinced of that. All right, but we'll have to stop there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, as we try to understand the importance of geography, Help us do our best to not discount it, not to dismiss it. But Lord, let's not, we don't want to fall into some trap of trying to claim that a person cannot understand your word unless they have extensive knowledge in the study of an academic area, field of study that you know requires years of work and much time. We, we don't want to in a sense, close your book from people understanding it. At the same time, Lord, if we have failed to study something that is important so that we can understand your word, then Lord, forgive us for misunderstanding your word this entire time. Help us find the truth and the balance in this so that we can pursue this field of study in a way that glorifies you and helps us better understand your word if that's the case. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,